This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gothamites. Just a quick note before we get started here to apologize for the sound quality on my end. When Pax and I started recording, I forgot to switch the microphone feed from the built-in laptop microphone to my recording mic, so uh, apologies for the subpar audio quality. All right, enjoy the episode. Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. Did I say my name? No, probably not. This is Lane, and with me is my co-host for this book, Paxton Holly. Welcome, Pax. Greetings, and thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. We're recording this little bumper to put ahead because I, I'm kind of slow with editing lately, and that's a flaw of mine. But the last time we recorded, I mean, COVID-19 was out there, but it wasn't. It hasn't, hadn't yet impacted our lives the way it has now. So uh, don't be surprised if you don't hear us talking about it at all. It's amazing how fast things changed, isn't it? Right, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's not like we were trying to avoid it for, or anything. It's just it hadn't blown up the way it had uh, when we recorded those last few. So definitely best wishes to everyone out there and stay safe. Definitely. So we did get a nice message packs from the uh, first episode we put out of this book. So this message was over at the batmanuniverse.net. So that's one place where you can leave comments or questions. You can also email at darknightpros at gmail.com or Twitter at batmanbooks underscore DKP. Pax, do you want to do your handles as well? Yeah, if uh, you are looking for me for whatever reason, um, you could more than likely find me at uh, my name, Paxton, P-A-X-T-O-N-H-O-L-L-E-Y. That will find me on Twitter. And I'm pretty responsive on Twitter. So if you're looking for me, have a shout out me there. I can be found there. In fact, that's where you and I kind of got to know each other. I think you commented on one of my episodes and then I saw the title of your own podcast, which is the I Read Movies podcast. And I thought, ooh, that's uh, right up my alley. And then look where we are now. You've been covering that first Batman 89 novelization. And uh, yeah. I think I was pretty close to either just covering it or I had, was about to cover it. And uh, so I was interested in hearing your take on it as well. Well, so we were on the same wavelength even before we met. Um, so this comment is from Chapman Baxter, another awesome name with an X in it. <laughs> uh, so let me go up and... and I checked with him to make sure we could discuss it. And he's like, oh, yeah, definitely. So um, his comment, 
was, thanks for this. I'm looking forward to listening to more episodes on the Batman Returns adaptation, especially if it can see us through self-isolation. But don't you think Max was still a bit cheap handing a $50 bill to the Santa Claus on top of a single? I mean, he was clearly doing it for the publicity, although I appreciate a big donation is a big donation. As for the penguin being born evil, we don't know how long he'd been in the cage before he attacked and ate, question mark, the cat, or whether he could have been a decent person had he been raised with even a modicum of love. Also, Gotham is clearly a very misogynistic, patriarchal society, but maybe the Ice Princess is one of the few women who could elicit everyone's immediate attention. Maybe there are some intersectional class issues, seeing as Selina is not simply a woman, but a working girl secretary, which explains why she's particularly ignored and demeaned. The Ice Princess seems to be a celebrity socialite type. I got on there and yeah, addressed this wonderful comment, and let's see. So as for the, the Max donation, a third name with an X in it. Oh, I'm filling out numbered here. Um, <laughs> so we, you, and, you and I both certainly knew what, what the book was aiming for. So yeah, he was being a cheapskate by his own standards. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think we even addressed that. Like, he knew what he was doing. He knew because he showed them... I'm giving him two bills. One of them is clearly a 50. So he knew the assumption would be the second one was a 50. But uh, exactly. And he circumvented that. Exactly. I mean, that was totally planned. And yes, it was being cheap. But also, yeah, I mean, from the other side, we were just saying, I mean, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, you know? Right, right. Uh, I did comment on the page, the BatmanUniverse.net, that it would have been serendipitous if he had happened to give him $2, making it $52, even though the new 52 wouldn't come out for another 20 years. I also agreed with him about the penguin and the fact that his parents screamed at his appearance and the medical staff had such a viscerally negative reaction. There are children born with some pretty serious medical issues, so they definitely reacted very strongly. <laughs> and But yeah, Oswald is clearly very intelligent and it's sad to think about the lost potential there just because he wasn't raised with any kindness whatsoever. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, nature versus nurture there. Um, I, I, don't, I don't remember if we brought that up, but uh, I think they're definitely going for that. And uh, I mean, he brings up a good point. I mean, it's like you have this penguin character who, I mean, yeah, he, he was born a certain way and yeah, maybe he's a bit more animalistic, but I, but if he was nurtured correctly, you know, maybe he would have outgrown that, you know, you get some colicky babies here. You have like a penguiny baby. Uh, maybe he would have overcome <laughs> that if he had been nurtured correctly. But uh, I absolutely agree that I think the, uh, the parents uh, reaction to him and kind of how they handled him, maybe they didn't know any better. That definitely led to make it worse. And, and they didn't have social media in the day, so they couldn't get on there and ask other parents how long it took them for their babies to stop eating the family cats. <laughs> right, so. exactly. Because how do you know? How else are you going to know? Yeah, if they're first-time parents, they're, they, they don't know. But yeah, I think we mentioned in the first episode about how one of the screenwriters also wrote Heathers, and that he's not a nature versus nurture. He's like, no, you're born bad. And you and I kind of were like, eh, maybe not so much. And I thought it was funny on retrospect how he mentioned that the Heather's characters were mostly based on his sister. So I'm guessing he thinks that his sister was born evil and was beyond hope. I don't know. <laughs> um, so you can kind of see some of that coming through with the penguin just being born a certain way. And that's, you know, you couldn't nurture that out of him. So, but like we mentioned before, we don't really uh, buy into that. And as for the Ice Princess eliciting attention, 
Um, what I meant was, I think it's hard for anyone to grab the immediate attention of a large crowd. Anyone who's not a huge celebrity, probably, I saw about five years ago, I went to West Virginia with some friends and we saw Stephen King give a talk, which was really cool because we were all big Stephen King fans. And the moment he walked onto stage, everyone was riveted, of course. But when it's an outdoor arena with thousands of people and the person's just a minor celebrity, I figured there'd be a lot more talking among the crowd and not a lot of people paying attention. So that's why I joked about it clearly being a work of fiction because of how difficult it is to grab a crowd's attention at the drop of a hat. But uh, Chapman Baxter responded. He thanked us for the response. Um, he said, I wasn't expecting it, but it's much appreciated. Well, definitely. I, I'm not inundated with comments, so I love getting them when they come in. And he goes on, I hope you don't mind offering your feedback to any thoughts I have following the future episodes. Definitely. I think, you know, Pax, you're with me on that, that we'd be happy to talk about any comments and questions we get in. This is what we're here for. Absolutely. Let us know what you think. I mean, there's definitely some discourse and and conversation that can happen uh, with some of the interpretations of these books. Exactly. So um, he says, with respect to your individual points, I do wonder what might have happened to the penguin had he been nurtured properly instead of being dumped and basically left to die as a baby. Although I truly doubt he'd have grown up to be the type of embittered sociopath who'd threatened to drown Gotham's firstborn before attempting to send penguin-carrying missiles at the entire city's population, I fear that he might still have grown up a villain, albeit more in the entitled and seemingly respectable mode. Uh, He goes on, then again, without extensive plastic surgery, he'd still have been shunned for his appearance and treated like a freak, irrespective of his wealth and family's heritage. So, yeah, people are uh, dicks, so I can definitely see that being the case. Anything to add on there so far? Anything, any thoughts popping up with you? Uh, No, no, I'm just, I'm glad for the feedback, and it it was pretty good feedback as well. Yeah, definitely. When he was mentioning how he might have grown up without some of the, like, how he was in this book, I think more of the penguin that we see in Gotham, the TV show. I really like that penguin. Uh, He's short, but not of, like, extremely short stature, and he doesn't have any of the uh, deformities that this penguin has. And while that penguin is also kind of maligned and whatnot, he really kind of... I don't know. I don't know how to to put it. He he definitely doesn't have the cards stacked against him quite as much as this one does. Uh, So it's interesting to see the different takes of Penguin and, you know, how he rises to get to where he eventually gets to. Yeah. Yeah, because the origin of this Penguin is completely different. Like the comic one, he comes from wealth, right? I mean, he hasn't had the disadvantages in the beginning. So, I mean, that, that definitely separates this interpretation from all the others and makes it a little bit more interesting, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely a a standalone, very different. He says, personally, I still like to believe that had this penguin been nurtured properly, he might have had a chance to be a semi-decent member of society, since I don't like to think anyone is born evil or incapable of being reformed at an early age. And I agree with that 100%. Yeah. He also replies, I see what you mean about grabbing a crowd's attention. I just wasn't sure at the time if you also meant how difficult it is for a woman to elicit attention. So, yeah, it was just more the size of the crowd and uh, just human nature. But, yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful conversation there. And uh, feel free to hop in with questions and comments on future episodes and chapters. And that goes for everybody else as well. 
Hello everyone, this is Pax, and I'm your host for I Read Movies, the podcast all about movie novelizations. Every month I read a classic movie or TV novelization and get on here and discuss it with you. I talk about who wrote it, I talk about when it came out, I run down all the changes, additions, and oddities featured in the book compared to the movie or TV show that is novelized. I've covered such classic novelizations as the original Indiana Jones trilogy, Back to the Future, Gremlins, The Lost Boys, Predator, Jaws the Revenge, and Lethal Weapon. Do you want to know about the nuclear bomb strike in Back to the Future? Or how about all the voodoo in Jaws the Revenge, or the mini cannonball run that happens in Lethal Weapon. I talk about all these things each month on the I Read Movies podcast. I read these books so you don't have to. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google. All right, so are you ready to hop into uh, chapter 16? I am. So chapter 18, or I'm sorry, chapter 16 begins on page 81. Chapter 16, scene 1. It seemed to take hours to get back to her apartment. Her bruises no longer mattered, nor her loss of blood, nor even the cold of the winter night. She would never again be a meek, self-deprecating administrative assistant. She entered her apartment with Miss Kitty in hand, but this place no longer suited her mood. It didn't speak of her awakening. There would have to be a few changes to this place. The first scene is from Selena's point of view. Just a, a reminder, this is right after she was thrown out the window. And she was not resurrected because I, I don't think the implication is here that she died because she was slow, her fall was slowed down by um, the awnings. But the, the cats, her at least Miss Kitty, woke her up. So Selena gets back to her apartment carrying her kitty, and she realizes she no longer quite likes all the pink of her home. And she has some black spray paint and starts ruining the pink walls and floor and couch. And she grabs her stuffed animals and puts the smaller ones in the garbage <laughs> disposal and tears up the larger ones with a knife. Yeah, it's, it seems like an odd way to dispose of stuffed animals to shove them in the uh, food disposal. <laughs> Yeah, even with them being smaller. I yeah, think even with them being smaller. Uh, yeah, and then just stabbing them with a knife. Uh, I mean, up to this point, the book really kind of to a, to a point infantile infantilizes Selena, uh, making her you know like with the dollhouse and the pink and everything. And uh, this is kind of her coming out like Catwoman coming out party. So you see her like douse everything in black and um, start cutting up a bunch of stuff. So it's it's an interesting kind of like I guess you know butterfly from a cocoon kind of moment. Mm-hmm. She's kind of going through her angsty teenage phase that she never went <laughs> That's through right. all oh. at once. So she goes straight to making her Catwoman suit. And that's described as, and after that, she used some interesting black scraps to sew a very special outfit. Hmm, I wonder what that could be. <laughs> and my favorite change is when the one that I really remember is where she punches out the two letters of the neon sign, changing it from hello there to hell here. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was always uh, one that stuck out to me as well as being one of the best, but one of the coolest things that she does. And the book even goes a little further here, saying it'll uh, it means uh, it's gonna whoever for whoever wronged her, it's gonna be hell for them. And uh, mm -hmm. like the movie didn't expound on that, but that that's a cool little tidbit that the book gives you. Yeah. So all this had taken the rest of the night. So when she's done, she got a bowl of milk for Miss Kitty. She says. I don't know about you, Miss Kitty, but I feel so much yummier. And she stretches out to watch the sunrise. So, yeah. She uh, becoming a night owl all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, nice, nice little scene of her uh, getting back back to her home, and she's decided that she's uh, changing her her uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She's changing who she is. Right, like her whole outlook. Yeah, her whole outlook, her whole look. Um, yeah, it's it's a very cool transformation scene, and I like that she. <laughs> I don't know. Like I also like that she kind of throws together the like from scraps and like her little costume that she's going to wind up using. I like that. You know, that's where that comes from. Is she just pulls and tears stuff of fabrics that she has apart and pulls it together. It'd be funny if some of the stuffed animals that she tore up ended up making their way into her costume. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that was that first scene. Chapter 16, Scene 2. Bruce Wayne moved quickly through Gotham Plaza. It was still a mess. A group of workmen forlornly tried to shore up a bullet-ridden Christmas tree, which seemed obviously beyond saving, while others boarded up the windows of the burnt-out stores. He knew some of those places wanted to open before Christmas. Right now, it looked hopeless. He wondered if Max Shrek still wanted to talk about that power plant his assistant had mentioned a week before. Perhaps this devastation would have changed Shrek's mind and Bruce would be asked to use his influence with one of the financial institutions with which he was connected to make an emergency loan for the plaza's benefit. Somehow, though, Max never seemed to pay much attention to what went on in the street, even when it was as bad as this. No, it would be the power plant all the way, that latest pet project that Shrek would swear was good for Gotham City, but in reality was only good to line the pockets of Max Shrek. The second scene is from Bruce's point of view. And he's making his way through Gotham Plaza, which is still a mess. And there's a group of workers who are trying to, quote, shore up a bullet-ridden Christmas tree. And at first I was like, just get a new tree. But in the same (laughs) breath, this says, which obviously seemed beyond saving. So Bruce is with me on that one. Uh, Maybe it was just like the principle of it. Like, no, this is the tree that we had and we're going to keep going no matter what. (laughs) Right. I also I also had a picture in my head of like uh, they're trying to fix this tree it, like on um is it uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas where it's like where you just, <laughs> where they just haul out another brand new tree and put it in its place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm picturing them like you know some one group of workers holding up the top half of the tree that had been cut off and they're like nailing two by fours to kind of <laughs> to <put> stabilize it. <laughs> it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> duct tape. <laughs> Uh, there are also other workers who are boarding up the windows of some burnt-out stores. Bruce kind of thinks that, you know, a lot of these stores were probably hoping to reopen before Christmas. Of course, this is the time of year they're going to make their best bit of revenue, but he thinks that they don't have a prayer of reopening in time. And uh, he's apparently on his way to see Max Shrek. They have a meeting set up to talk about the power plant that Shrek's assistant hadn't mentioned the, the week before. I was kind of surprised that Shrek didn't even talk to Bruce himself. He had his assistant do it. That, that just seems like a power move for, for Max. It's just like, I'm not going to bother calling. My assistant is going to do it. Right. Which, you know, de- with anyone else, I think that definitely the way he would go. But if Bruce is also going to be like the main donor. Yeah. I think he'd want to like schmooze a little bit to get his way but yeah with with shrek playing it could have gone either way with that one right it's always a game with him so it's like you're right i mean it totally like bruce should be a powerful enough person in gotham that max would want to do it himself but yeah you're right it'd go either way like he, he could totally play the game the other way and just show bruce hey i'm you know i'm too important to be calling you myself mm-hmm 
So as Bruce is going, he's wondering if perhaps all of this, you know, this destruction had changed Max's mind. And, you know, maybe he would ask Bruce instead to make an emergency loan for the plaza's benefit. But he thinks, nah, he's he's still going to be on about the power plant. So he, he knows Max Shrek just enough to kind of read that characteristic about him. So Bruce enters the lobby that leads to the business offices of the Shrek Empire, and he notices that it's uh, quite unscathed. He takes the elevator to the penthouse and announces himself to a secretary who seems to be new to the job. Hmm, I wonder Mm. why they have a new secretary. So Bruce then goes into the inner office, and Max and, (laughs) this is funny, Max and Chip are standing in front of the smashed picture window. Yeah, they both have their back turned to him, so they don't really they haven't noticed yet that Bruce has entered. Right. And Max is saying, I hope nothing I don't know, icky happened to her, devoured by a stray reindeer or Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> totally not suspicious at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm picturing him going up to say, How the hell are you? How long have you been standing there? <laughs> Walking over, holding out his hand to shake it. Apparently the new secretary didn't give Max a heads up that Bruce was there. Or, um, so Bruce steps forward, like he said, to, to shake his hand. And he uses that chance to get a closer look at the window. And he says, mm, primitive ventilation. <laughs> you, you don't hear Bruce make a lot of jokes. So I, I, like, yeah. <laughs> I like that he does that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was strange because Max blames it on the, quote, carny Bolsheviks throwing a brick through the window. And I'm like, aren't you guys in a penthouse of what I guess is a quite a large building? It was tall enough it should have killed Selena as she fell. But I don't know, maybe someone's got a good arm. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. I was just, I was in love that he called the Red Triangle Gang, Carney Bolsheviks. I just yeah. love that. So I didn't even think about the story that he told him that they threw a brick through the window. I mean, it's like, that's a good point. Like, they not only knew which exact window was his, but they tossed it up there and got it, like, like no problem. So Exactly. <laughs> a- Unless they had, like, the man shot from the cannon carrying a brick with him or something. Right, right. They shot him <laughs> up in the air and he threw it straight across. Like, yeah, that's... I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. <laughs> but... Bruce isn't buying it, not so much for like the height of the building, but he says, no, no glass on the inside. And I, I really like this ver- the side we see of Bruce, which we don't see a whole lot. Because normally Bruce, of course, is the socialite and he's fairly chummy. And he's actively working against Max during this meeting. Um, hmm. He's not being a pushover. He's just like, yeah, let's let's go on and get to that. So after Bruce mentions that there's no glass on the inside, Max kind of squirms a bit and he's like, uh, why don't we go into the conference room? <laughs> so they go and sit down at a round table and Max says, I'd offer you coffee, but my assistant is using her vacation time. This interaction is strange. Bruce says, everyone but the bandits seem to be slacking off into, until New Year's. And Max immediately takes that as that he's not slacking off, so Bruce must think he's a bandit too. Right. He says, not sure I like the inference, Bruce. I'm pushing this power plant now because it'll cost more later. Time is money, life is short, and a million saved is a million earned. I like that inference. And I was going to agree with you that I like the version of Bruce we get here, is that he's got a goal and he's got, like, he's there 
to oppose this power plant from the very beginning. So he comes in, mm-hmm. you know, very, uh, very antagonistic. Well, not even antagonistic, but very like just stonewalling uh, Max. And, you know, and he comes in and uh, points out the glass on the inside, which gives you just kind of like, you know, the, the subtlest little bit of uh, he's noticed the way the way he notices things, you know, and, uh, the, you know, Batman would do that like the detective, you know, so he notices, well, they couldn't have come in because there there's no glass on the inside. It's got to be something went out, you know, so he's, he's noticing these things and then he comes in and he's and like you said, he's not uh, he's not bowing down to anything. He's not intimidated by Max or anything like that and just uh, he's there to do his business and that's what he's going to do and uh, and I agree I like seeing this version of Bruce because normally you know sometimes he's a little absent-minded sometimes like you said he's just kind of the jovial socialite kind of guy so it's good to see this version of him as well yeah we, we normally see him at fundraisers or you know with with other characters but here like this is kind of a business side of it so, so Bruce opens up his briefcase and says, I commissioned this report. Thought you should see it. You know, Max kind of gives it a cursory look. And to one of my favorite lines of, you know, what's going on, Bruce says, here's the point, Max. Gotham City has a, has a power surplus. I'm sure you know that. So the question is, what's your angle? Max jumps to his feet and he's like, a power surplus? Shame on you, Bruce. There's no such thing. One can never have too much power. That's a... Okay. <laughs> That's a, that is a very subtle double-edged sword right there. That I mean, he's totally giving two messages there, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. And of course, Chip is standing behind his dad. And he's just kind of like kind of bobbing his head in agreement. Mm-hmm. Bruce says, Max, I'm going to fight you on this. The mayor and I have already spoken and we see eye to eye here. So, and then Max cuts in with a little bit of a, oh, this is funny. Uh, so he says, mayors come and go and heirs tire easily. And then he, quote, put up his dukes and threw a punch at the air. And he says, you really think a flyweight like you could last 15 rounds with Muhammad Shrek? What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, like, I did I guess he's making a reference to Muhammad Ali, I guess. Right. Um, Because for the longest time, I'm like, is his first name Muhammad? I'm like, that didn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) But uh, I finally got it. I was like, oh, I guess he's talking about Muhammad Ali. But it is totally, (laughs) I I love that line. And I love the way he delivers it in the movie. But uh, it is a funny, (laughs) kind of a weird line. Yeah, it's very, like, this whole thing is surreal. It makes you wonder how he got to where he is as CEO of Shrek industries or whatever it is because he doesn't seem to have any negotiating skills here so i I can't wait to see this scene in the movie and see how they handle it because it's such a an odd thing and i I wouldn't think even with if people think that bruce isn't trained i don't think he would qualify as a flyweight right yeah it might have just been you know something flippant said but uh, usually you hear at least some of the um media that I've come across either from the games or the little bit I've read because he's a rich boy even though he's a large they're like yeah you're big or yeah, you've got some size to you but you know definitely don't know how to use it little do they know <laughs> right so at this point Bruce calls him out on having a crime boss like Cobblepot backing him and Max says that Oswald is Gotham's new golden boy and Bruce says that Oswald controls the Red Triangle Circus Gang. I can't prove it, but we both know it's true. 
I feel like uh, he's he's edging a little bit close to revealing that he's, I don't know, a, a bit of a vigilante that just might be my worrying about him showing his cards. But Right. And no, my cats are being white, rather rambunctious. <laughs> I thought I heard Zoom Zooms going on in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our cat does that. That was funny earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I had some, I've had a lot of Zoom meetings this past month for obvious reasons. And I was just finishing up one and uh, my husband came out and saw that all the cats were lying around on the couch next to me and I said you know they misheard they thought they were having a zoomy meeting (laughs) (laughs) which they would love I know ours ours does that too like uh like around 10-ish um he'll start just flying all around the house like crazy yeah, two of mine are doing that right now. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry, I, I probably uh, interrupted. Uh, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. What was the last thing you talked about? Um, that he can't prove that Oswald controls <gasps> right, the right, Red right. Triangle oh, Circus, yeah, but he, he knows it's showed true. His, showed his hand a little bit. Right, he showed his hand a little bit. Um, yes, I would agree with you. I did not... Like, I thought about that, but I never, uh, that's a very good point, that he, he reveals a little bit that he's obviously done some research on some stuff, that why would Playboy Bruce Wayne have information like that, and why would he be looking up information like that? So, I mean, he is dangerously close to revealing something that maybe he shouldn't, and he does it very cavalierly, but uh, but I, I like that he did it, um, and I guess he figures there with Muhammad Shrek is not that big of a deal um, <laughs> to, to do it, because Shrek is clearly dealing in something so I, I guess he feels comfortable enough revealing that there yeah and max says if my assistant were here she would have escorted you out and i noticed that he keeps calling her his assistant yeah. and not a secretary right. so it's a little a little late there but but uh speaking of which who comes in selena returns selena returns and um She's apparently quite riveting because, of course, Bruce is taken with her immediately. Uh, She's very fashionably dressed with a haircut that framed and highlighted her face, and the only thing out of place was a bandage on her hand. And Bruce recognizes her as the woman that a clown had seized as a hostage the other day. The narrative says that she had seemed so uncertain then compared to the way she looked now. Max is a little surprised, and he's like, Selena? 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 (laughs) And Selena says... That's my name, Maximilians. Don't wear it out, babe, or I'll make you buy me a new one. I love that line. It's a great line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what I like is that I think Selena Kyle probably had a little spark of this that was in her all along. And just finally, when uh, you know her boss basically tried to kill her, that's when she kind of cast away all the, the years of being down on herself. Just like, you know what? That that little bit that's in me, It's there's nothing holding it back now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. She's got she's got this whole, you know, sultry, steamy thing going on now because she's just let loose now. She's like all confidence. She's like all, you know, all the inhibitions are gone now. And uh, she's just bringing that to the forefront. And uh, I, I like seeing that, that, you know, they have uh, Bruce just kind of like taken aback by her. And uh, I love you see Max is kind of, you know, the way Max was not stunned or anything when he met the penguin but he gets totally tongue-tied here for a bit when he sees selena for the first time um so i i, I love that we see him like that too he does recover quite quickly because he he's like uh, selena this is um uh, bruce wayne 
Yeah, he does. I mean, but he's Max, so I mean, of course, he's gonna he's gonna be able to roll with with things. But uh, it's it's good to see him kind of mess up like that. It's kind of funny, like the book mentions, and you, you had re- you had mentioned it a little bit there that it said uh, Bruce recognized her from the clown incident earlier on, and uh, like in the movie, you get that Bruce makes a little slip up where he says, "Yeah, we've met before," and uh, she says, "Have we?" And he he kind of stumbles a little bit. He's like, "Did I say that?" I mean, I got confused, you know, and everything. But and I always thought that was just him being kind of nervous and. Stuff stepping over himself but uh the book mm-hmm. the book tells you it's because he remembered as batman that he'd met her before so he thought that you know that's why he said it wrong and i never picked up on that until i read the book and i, I was just like that that was a neat little detail that i, I liked yeah and, but he still kind of stumbles over himself a little bit because right. like when she says have we he says sorry i mistook me for somebody else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which i really love that so i don't know if that's him um stumbling over the sight of this woman that he's kind of taken taken by or if he, he's kind of stumbling over his ego slash alter ego I t- mistook me for somebody else. I don't know right yeah I think it's a little bit of both <laughs> I think yeah I, I, he is still a little bit taken aback by her yeah yeah uh, so Bruce being suave takes Selena's bandaged hand and asks what happened and Max he's like yeah uh, did you injure yourself on that ski slope is that why you cut short your vacation and came back and why he thinks Selena would cover for him I don't know but she's, you know, she kind of goes along with it and she she shrugs and thinks maybe that broken window over there had something to do with it. Or maybe not. It's blurry. I mean, it's not complete amnesia. I remember Sister Mary Margaret puking in church and Becky Riley said it was morning sickness. And I remember the time I forgot to wear underpants to school and the name of the boy who noticed, Ricky Friedberg. He's dead now. But last night, complete and total blur, <laughs> which I I love I love all that because she is messing with Max and yeah, she knows it totally. And I like how it's played in the book. Like uh, if you when we watch the movie, like she kind of reverts a little bit as she gets into that story back to a little. It feels like a little bit of like scared Selena and maybe also playing a little bit, you know, kind of just disjointed crazy selena but in the book it plays more to me like it's still that confident just like she's doing this to totally mess with max because she knows it'll just keep him on you know pins and needles just kind of putting the screws to him a little bit yeah because this is probably the first time in her life that she is meeting max with equal footing she like even if she were so kind of mousy um she has something over him the fact that he tried to kill her Mm -hmm. so she's got some leverage so But I think now, even without leverage, this new Selena can handle herself. Yeah, oh yeah. Max, he's he's still trying to grin through all this. And he's a, um, please show out Mr. Wayne. So Selena leads him to the elevator. So while they're leaving, Selena says to Bruce, you don't seem like the type that does business with Mr. Shrek. And Bruce says, well, you don't seem like the type to take orders from him. So they kind of flirt a little bit. And uh, she like including the point where you know she tells him like I'm listed in the phone book and he's in the elevator car I'm imagining him with a sappy grin on his face and just as the doors start to close it says he realizes that he's missing the most important information of all so just before the elevator elevator doors close he kind of jumps out back out into the floor and uh, could you guess before you know this is the end of the chapter so did you guess beforehand what that most important information was? 
Yeah, when I, as I was reading it, I, I kind of figured what he was talking about. Um, even though yeah. in the movie they just kind of gloss over it a little bit. And so, but when he did it, I was like, oh yeah, I guess he doesn't. He doesn't have his number, her number, I guess, or her name. Yeah, her name. He doesn't. Yeah, have even though she's listed, he doesn't have her her last name, so he can't look her up. Hmm. I'm kind of surprised he jumped after her and, and didn't save face by just going home and say, uh, Alfred, uh, would you look up the staff information on Shrek Industries and find someone with the name Selena? So <laughs> he totally could have done that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but he's uh, he's smitten. So some of that world's greatest detective stuff goes out the window. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Chapter 17, Scene 1. The woman who was once Selena had taken off her bandage and slowly, methodically, was squeezing blood from her finger into the percolating coffee. So, Max, want some more of my blood? She looked up and saw Bruce Wayne watching her. She tried to smile. Pouring myself into my work, she explained. Bruce smiled back. I, uh, didn't catch your last name. Just like that, as if he saw people dripping blood into coffee every day. Oh, she replied, Kyle. She put her left hand to her ear and made an exaggerated circling motion with her right index finger. Rhymes with dial. He gave her a thumbs up and disappeared. There was something about that man, she thought. Something that almost made her want to go back to being plain old Selena Kyle. She purred deep in her throat. Almost, but not quite. Chapter 17 begins on page 90. The first scene is from Selena's point of view, and this is a strange little scene. Yes. So Selena takes the bandage off of her hand and squeezes some blood from her finger into the coffee pot. And while she's doing this, Bruce, who had, you know, exited the elevator from the chapter before, is uh, watching her. And she comments that she's uh, pouring myself into my work, (laughs) which is okay. Uh, Strangely, Bruce doesn't seem to care about what he's seeing. And of course, she asks for the last name. And he gives her a thumbs up and leaves again. So he's literally just there long enough to see what she's doing. And then he's he's gone. And then there's the line that there's something about Bruce that almost makes Selena want to go back to being plain old Selena Kyle. Almost, but not quite. And I wasn't really sure how to take that. Yeah, that's an interesting little revelation about Selena. I'm guessing... My only takeaway is that she means that in that the way she is now, she can't see anyone. I mean, like, it's against her nature now to be with anyone that way. So it's like if she goes back to how she was previously, she could kind of date Bruce and have a little relationship. But as she is now, as Selena Kyle, Catwoman, she can't have a relationship with someone or someone like Bruce, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Another way that it can be taken, a lot of people will talk about the force of will that Batman has. I don't know how much he, that he played dials that back when he's uh, Bruce Wayne, but he can kind of be mm-hmm. intimidating in some ways. And if there's something about him that made her want to go back to being an invisible person so that he doesn't notice her. So, yeah, it's just there's so many nuances that are available for interpretation from that line that it's, yeah, it's it's not really plain exactly what, what we're supposed to think from that. Right. So. Chapter 17, Scene 2. Max had to admit it. This Selena thing had him spooked. Her death would have been so much simpler, but he couldn't let this little setback destroy his confidence. It was time to call the Penguin and check up on Oswald's new home. 
Not, of course, that Oswald Cobblepot knew anything about its real purpose. Yet. Chip looked up at him as he picked up the phone. You buy this blurry business? His son asked. Who knows? Max replied as he began to dial the number. Women. He glanced back up at his son and finished dialing. The phone on the other end began to ring. A gruff voice answered. Yeah, Max replied into the receiver. Oswald, please. His son waved in agreement and left the room as Max waited for the penguin. This would work out fine. Uh, the next scene is from Max's point of view. You know, Max is admitting to himself that he's a little unnerved by the Selena thing, <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Not only did she survive the fall, she's uninjured enough to come back to to work the next day. And uh, she is um, acting a little strange. But anyway, uh, he calls the penguin. Before he calls the penguin, I, I just wanted to bring up... Um... There's a line from the movie, surprisingly, that's not in the book, that I think it's a great line, and I'm kind of sad it's not in the book. But uh, it's in this whole thing where he's talking about her story, and they think she's trying to blackmail him for something. Or Chip was asking, do you think she's trying to blackmail you? And uh, Max comes back and says, if she tries to blackmail me, I drop her out a higher window. And I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a great line. It's a great Max line. And I'm, I'm sad it's oh, not in the book. that is a great Max good. line. But, yeah. They should have... <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Well, um, so Max says it's time to call the penguin, and this is where we learn that uh, he's set Oswald up in a building, mm-hmm. and there's a line that says, not, of course, that Oswald Cobblepot knew anything about its real purpose yet. And I thought, oh, that's kind of ominous. Yeah. Before you know, As he's dialing the phone, Chip is like, do you buy this blurry business? And Max's reply is, who knows, women. Never mind that he threw her out the window, and but it, right. because she's a woman, it's you know she's the mystery. So yeah, he he's just making a phone call to Penguin. Chapter seventeen, scene three. The phone rang in the Penguin's warehouse. Oswald Cobblepot had to admit it. Max had come through on this one. His new headquarters had two different floors. Downstairs was big and brightly lit, and still under construction as if Max was planning to give the penguin some sort of office. No doubt it would be a good place to meet the public, if the penguin ever wanted to do that sort of thing. Upstairs, it was a different story. Dirty, dingy, cluttered. A real working space. The Red Triangle Circus Gang hung out up here, practicing their acts and generally acting rowdy. They had opened a large ventilation duct up here that also opened up at the rear of the building, so that the gang members could come and go at will without the embarrassment of having to deal with those boringly legitimate people on the first floor. The next scene, it shifts over to that warehouse that we were talking about, and it's from Penguin's point of view. Penguin's kind of, uh, the narrative is kind of describing this warehouse. It's uh, two floors. Downstairs was big and brightly lit and still under construction. And the upstairs was dirty and dingy, and it's where the Red Triangle Circus hung out at. And uh, so they had a lo- they had opened a large ventilation duct up here so that they could come and go without the embarrassment of having to deal with those boringly legitimate people on the first floor. <laughs> so yeah, when you need a, a new exit, you just make one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I like this um, description of their hideout, and you do get a glimpse of like. Penguin knows some construction's going on in the downstairs, which we'll see in a few couple scenes here, uh, a scene or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, but 
in the movie, it always came across that he was completely surprised stuff was going on, like what Max was doing downstairs. Whereas here in the book, it's like he knows something's going. Max is up to something down there. So, I mean, he's not. He shouldn't be as surprised as he is in the movie. Yeah. So it refers back uh, a few chapters back when Penguin was going through the Gotham Hall of Records with those legal pads. So he's got that list of names. And we find out what he's doing now is cross-referencing them against the white pages of the Gotham phone books. So the organ grinder is the one who answers the phone and you know he gives it to Penguin and it's just it's a really short little conversation it's literally uh, their entire conversation is penguin saying yeah what is it i'm busy up here and max says good stay busy up there i got plans for us below and penguin says plans swell later and hangs up <laughs> so i thought it was interesting the difference between how eloquent he can be when he needs to be but since he's focused on that cross referencing and revenge he's just totally distracted and curt and just wants off the phone as soon as possible yep so that was chapter 17 batman nightcast a thrilling new podcast from the fire and water podcast network Hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin, Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right, let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year Three. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? Chapter 18, we get our first glimpse at Catwoman. And I think this is a time that we can uh, see it on the stage. Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present That Time Catwoman Rescues a Damsel in Distress. It was time to prowl. She could no longer stay in her den, even after it had been transformed. Cats were meant to roam the night. So she roamed. <coughs> what did we have here? The dirty streets of Gotham seem to have coughed up some more of their scum. And who is it today? Just your average garden variety mugger who had grabbed a pretty young woman and dragged her back into an alley. Help! Batman! Batman? Is that all the woman could think of? Now, now, pretty young thing. Nice and easy. The victim cowered and held out her purse. Please don't hurt me. I'll do anything. The other woman had had quite enough of this. She leapt from the fire escape, landing squarely on the mugger's back. He flew forward to the ground. I just love a big, strong man who's not afraid to show it. 
with someone half his size. The mugger had managed to roll onto his back. He stared up at her in astonishment. Who the... Be gentle. It's my first time. Apparently he wasn't listening because he leapt up with a growl, intent on grabbing her. She darted out of the way and gave him a savage kick. All the breath left him as he staggered back. Hey, not bad, she thought. But before he could recover, it was time for the talons. She jumped forward and set to work scratching up his face. The mugger screamed and fell to the asphalt. Tic-tac-toe. The victim rushed up to her side. Thank you, thank you, I was so scared. Her defender had had enough of this, too. She pushed the victim back against the wall with one of her claws. You make it so easy, don't you? You pretty, pathetic young thing. Always waiting for some bat man to save you. The victim cringed again, quaking, expecting something even worse. She leaned forward to whisper in the victim's ear. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. And with that, Catwoman leapt away, cartwheeling out of the alley to disappear into the night. So, um, I don't know a whole lot about Catwoman's history. And of course, she's a cat burglar. I didn't know if it was kind of a recent thing where she was kind of an anti-hero. But right away in this book, they have her portrayed as kind of stepping in and, and helping someone. So it looks like she's a little bit of the anti-hero here as well. Right. Yeah, I guess she's always been kind of like, you know, the bad girl possible girlfriend for Batman. But But you're right. I think it's been more of a recent thing where she's also maybe kind of come on to the good side every once in a while so uh so yeah um because mm-hmm. all the all the vintage stuff all the old stuff she's always been a bad guy but batman is totally like you know enamored with her Mm-hmm. and i really like her being an anti-hero yeah or you know a villain light as it were i think that makes her really interesting as a character very compelling agreed chapter 19 scene one with all these interruptions, the penguin would never finish. He looked up to see Max Shrek stepping between the members of the Red Triangle Circus, past the tattooed strongman, rippling those belly dancers he had tattooed on his biceps, stopping to let one of the acrobats walk past on his hands. Max grinned at the penguin. Somehow, he seemed much too cheerful for a businessman. Max nodded at all the performers around them. Ah, he remarked, your extended family. The penguin sighed. Max was leading up to something. His lists would have to wait for the minute. Come on downstairs, Oswald, Max urged. I have a surprise. We're moving on to chapter 19 already, and it's the, uh, the first scene is from Penguin's point of view. And he looks up, uh, he was still working on his names and cross-referencing, and he looks up to see Max Shrek stepping between the members of the circus. And... Uh, he says, come on, Oswald, come downstairs. I got, you know, I have a surprise for you. And Penguin's like, I don't like surprises. <laughs> and it, it's interesting. It says that he's starting to think that it's a, a mistake. He's starting to regret coming out of the sewers, um, which doesn't surprise me because, you know, we kind of, I think we mentioned briefly before with him growing up away from society, he'd probably have some, you know, social anxieties going on. 
and I, I don't know if they're they were going for. I think you they're just aiming for. You know, you're annoying me. I wish I were still in the sewers. But I think if you could dig a little deeper, uh, we can see that you know he's not used to being around humans very much of the time, or any type of society that isn't the Red Triangle Circus Gang. Perhaps that's a little bit of that getting in there too. That he just wants to go back to what was normal for him. I definitely agree with you that uh, there is probably a part of him that would go back. Like in a heartbeat. Like the only thing that's keeping him out is his pads and the little revenge plot that he has planned. Like that's the only thing keeping him going up here on the surface. Otherwise, he would pack pack it up and head back into the sewers. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. Like, there's probably a kernel of truth in that statement. Yeah. So he kind of gradually gets up, and he and Max start going down a spiral staircase, and um. Max says, I don't want to spoil it. And he wants to put his hands over Penguin's eyes. And Penguin's like, uh, no. <laughs> he he doesn't trust a lot of people. And um, yeah, he wasn't about to let Max put his hands over his eyes. Especially since they're walking down spiral stairs. I mean, it's not, not the best time to blind somebody. Right. Max says, well, you know, okay, well, close your eyes then. Penguin does that. He's got his eyes closed all the way down the stairs until... They reach the bottom and he opens his eyes and Max is like, ta-da! And we see that the storefront, which used to be an old drugstore, was transformed into something, it says, bustling and cheerful, full of desks and computers and college kids. The walls were painted white and then someone had hung red, white, and blue bunting. And there are posters around and some of what say Cobblepot for Mayor and Ozzy versus the Insiders. (laughs) I'd forgotten about that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what this, uh, all the secrecy was, was he, it's a campaign office, basically. And Penguin's like, uh, what, what, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. I love this line by Pax. Max says, did I say Pax? I love this line by Max. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all those X's. Um, but Max says, Adulation is across the bear. God knows I know. <laughs> but someone's got to supplant our standing in the way of progress mayor. And don't deny it, Mr. Cobblepot. Your charisma is bigger than both of us. That is a good Max line, too. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I guess there there is some storylines of Penguin being bear. And I know it comes up in uh, the Gotham series. So, yeah, apparently this is just a not too uncommon story thread of the Penguin. Is that he either ran for mayor or was mayor at some point? Yeah, something like that. And, and you know, it is what it is. Even in the movie, like, I don't love the subplot because who cares? I mean, it feels like a who cares kind of a subplot. And uh, it, it's like something Max was running so and just roped the penguin into. So it, it felt kind of inconsequential. But you do get some mileage out of certain things that are kind of funny. And, and what's amazing is that he went through all this trouble without even broaching the idea to Penguin in the first place. <laughs> he has to convince him right there on the spot. Yeah, yeah that just kind of shows how confident Max is and his idea is like, yeah, he's going to go for it. Penguin's like, uh, elections happen in November. It's late December. What are you doing? Before he answers, um, Max kind of waves over a well-dressed man and woman who end up being Jen and Josh. And Josh says... Keep the umbrella. Works for you. And then he shoves something in Penguin's mouth, which ends up being a jet black cigarette holder. So he's kind of working on Penguin's image. And mm-hmm. Jen is also kind of working on that. She um, she says, stand still for a second while I slip on these little glove thingies. 
I'm guessing they are gloves that kind of give him the semblance of having hands because she says, our research tells us that voters like fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Voters like fingers. Yeah. And it doesn't, I don't put it past them to have done a, like a blanket poll to see, tell us your thoughts. Do you want fingers on your politicians or not? (laughs) (laughs) They definitely did that. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, they're they're kind of fussing around him, and, and Penguin's not really liking all this attention. He's bearing it for right now. And then Josh says, not a lot of reflective surfaces down in the sewer, huh? Which is a funny line. Yeah. <laughs> but then they make the mistake of laughing. And, of course, the Penguin, he, he's going to see this as a slight, as an insult. And this is great. Uh, Penguin says, still, it could be worse. My nose could be gushing blood. And Josh says, your nose could, what? What do you mean? And that's when the penguin bites him on the nose. Now, does he bite the nose off or just damage it? Do you remember from the movie? Uh, Well, the movie is not very clear. I think it was just a bite and he maybe even got his teeth in there, but I don't think he ripped anything off. Good, because I wouldn't put it past him. No, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Max steps in and pulls him apart. Josh faints to the floor and (laughs) it says the fellow had no stamina at all. Max would have to get a better grade of consultant than that to keep up with the penguin. You know, Max finally answers the question that he had asked earlier. He says, you're right. We missed the regularly scheduled election, but elected officials can be recalled, impeached, given the boot. Think of Nixon, Meacham, Barry. Then think of you, Oswald Cobblepot, filling the void. So we had talked about the the math needed to recall a mayor, which I got completely wrong at first because I got my numbers wrong. But yeah, Max would have Max would have to have a lot of pull to get people to recall. But you know, I think he's he's going to put his efforts behind it, and he could definitely get away with it. Maybe, maybe that's why he didn't mention he had the numbers again like he mm-hmm. did last time because he like went back to the number and he's just like whoa I was way off like maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't have the numbers so he didn't mention it again and he he figured that out by listening to our podcast when he's like exactly. oh she's right they are so right <laughs> what was I thinking <laughs> so on the tail of the line you think of you Oswald Cobblepot filling the void. We learn that Oswald Cobblepot is just filthy-minded. <laughs> he looks over at Jen, and he, he murmurs, I'd like to fill her void. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this whole scene, <laughs> you learn that the penguin's a little oversexed. Yeah. And, uh, like, there's a lot of mentions and comments in here that, uh, I mean, it's been a long time for him, if ever. Yeah, and, probably uh, if he ever. Let you, yeah, exactly. And he lets you know it mm-hmm. um, in this little part. It's not one of my favorite parts. I mean, I, some of it is funny, but I think they overdo it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> You know, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a it's a little much. Like talking about a French flipper trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like what? <laughs> nah. So anyway, the Oswald or Max tells him that okay, we need a platform for you to campaign on. And Penguin says, so what about stop global warming, start global cooling, make the world a giant icebox. Max is like, yeah, yeah, that, that that sounds great. But they still need a catalyst, a trigger, an incident to get the the current mayor out of office. So at this point, Oswald's kind of starting to daydream of being mayor. He's kind of warming to the idea a little bit. So Max mentions two historical events, one being the Reichstag fire and the other being the Gulf of Mm -hmm. Tonkin. I, I consulted Mr. Wikipedia. 
Uh, the Reichstag fire was an arson attack on the Reichstag building, home of the German parliament in Berlin, on May 27, February 1933, precisely four weeks after Adolf Hitler was sworn in as Chancellor of Germany. Hitler's government stated that Marinus van der Lubbe, a Dutch council communist, was the culprit, and they attributed the fire to communist, communist agitators in general, though a German court decided later that the year that the van der Lubbe had acted alone, as he claimed, after the fire, the Reichstag fire decree was passed. The Nazi party used the fire as a pretext to claim that communists were plotting against the German government, and the event is considered pivotal in the establishment of Nazi Germany. The term Reichstag fire has come to refer to false flag actions facilitated by an authority to promote their own interests through popular approval of retribution or retraction of civil rights. And then the Gulf of Tonkin is kind of uh, along similar lines in term of the goal. So the Gulf of Tonkin incident, also known as the USS Maddox incident, was an international confrontation that led to the United States engaging more directly in the Vietnam War. It involved one real and one falsely claimed confrontation between the ships of Nor North Vietnam and the United States in the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. The original American report blamed North Vietnam for both incidents, but the Pentagon Papers, the memoirs of Robert McNamara, and NSA publications from 2005 proved material misrepresentation by the U.S. government to justify a war against Vietnam. Uh, so basically, what we're getting from this is, you know, Max is a history buff, and he's wanting something to happen <laughs> that can be blamed on the mayor to start a conflict. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I remember both of these incidences from history class, but uh, the Reichstag fire, which, like, that's come up a lot. Like, in movies, they tend to use that reference a lot. And, like, the one I can think of off the top of my head, Kevin Costner used it in JFK, um, bringing up the Reichstag fire. Mm. And, uh, like, wh whenever they bring up something that's, like, you know, just like what you said and how it's described, but taking away civil liberties or some kind of shady dealings, a lot of times the, the Reichstag fire is, some, is brought up. Because I, I know I've heard it several times. I'm sure I've read about these before, but they didn't sink into, they didn't like make a wrinkle in my brain. They didn't imprint themselves on my memory. So right. I did have to look those up to figure out what was going on. So Penguin's like, oh, you want to use the Red Triangle Circus for that? And Max says, yeah, but they, they got to come and go via the plumbing ducts that I've provided. So Penguin's starting to get really excited about the thought of being mayor, but then he kind of is like, well, he, he doesn't want to get sidetracked from his plans on revenge. And Max tells him, Oswald, this is your chance to fulfill a destiny that your parents carelessly discarded. Penguin says, reclaim my birthright, which is something that Josh had said to him before he bit his nose. And uh, <laughs> Max says, as mayor, I love this line. I love it and hate it. Uh, Max <laughs> says, as mayor, you'll have the ear of the media. Access to captains of industry. Unlimited Puntang. <sighs> and Penguin yeah. says, you drive a hard bargain, Max. <laughs> and then <laughs> the, I think it was that last one that's like, all right, I'll be the mayor. Yep. Uh, so the end of that scene, he goes over to the window to look out at Gotham City and he whispers, burn, baby, burn. I like, uh, yeah, so yeah, that ending the whole oversex thing but uh <laughs> but this little ending where he goes up and says burn baby burn it's completely different in the movie and uh i don't know if you remember it it's a huge i remember it 
from the trailer, I remember it's like he plays it super big, like Danny DeVito plays it super big. And he's like, he starts walking back up the stairs and yells to everyone that's down there in the basement and down there in that office, burn, baby, burn, like at the top of his lungs. So it's like, what, what are they going to think? I mean, I thought they were supposed to think he's a normal mayoral candidate. But uh, yeah. what, what kind of guy is going to yell that to everyone? So I really like how it's handled in the book where it's like he's agreed to this thing with Max and he walks over and looks out over Gotham and just kind of whispers it to himself like, that's his plan. Like he's going to burn this place to the ground and, but he doesn't want anyone else to know. And I like it played better in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't remember it from the movie, but the way you described it, I definitely like this better, especially because, you know, that would burn baby burn is not a good slogan for someone who's uh, campaigning for global cooling. (laughs) Exactly. Chapter 20, scene one. Nothing's as good as the circus. And that went double when the circus gang decided it was time to steal. The organ grinder played a merry tune as his monkey danced, then pressed the plunger. Boom went the insta-teller machine. The monkey danced forward to snatch the cash. All this dough, the organ grinder exclaimed. It's burning a hole in my pocket. All right, so we're on to chapter 20, and we're just about reaching the halfway point of this book. Despite the uh, gaps in time between our recording, it just feels like we're going along through this really fast, I think, because of how short the chapters are. But on chapter 20, begins on page 105, the Red Triangle Circus Gang is at it again. They're back out causing mischief and mayhem, beating up citizens, and the organ grinder blows up an ATM. They, he called it in the narrative an insta-teller machine. And I know this book came out in the early 90s, and I was curious when ATMs came out. So, Pax, do you happen to know when the first ATM came out? I do not. September 2nd, 1969. 69, wow. Yeah, that's a good bit earlier than I thought it would be. Yeah, I was, I was not prepared to hear 69. Yeah. So they torched the ice rink. I'm not sure how you do that, but... And uh, the, <laughs> the 12th precinct has reports of offensive graffiti and a pharmacy heist. Someone's bar is pretty low if offensive graffiti is... (laughs) (laughs) To bother mention it with everything else going on, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Somebody spray-painted the (laughs) F-word. Yeah, I'm glad they threw the pharmacy heist in there to... The pharmacy heist in there to uh, to even that out a bit. Yeah. So Penguin, he's getting reports of this from the organ grinder. I don't know if it's through the telephone. It just says that he's... You find this with like regular reports. Yeah, you're right. How is he receiving that information? Yeah, so it's it's kind of vague. So I'm imagining from what said next that you know Penguin's probably safely back at his warehouse because he can't have his name sullied by being with this. But he wishes he could be out there too. He says, "I'd love to get my flippers dirty, bust someone's skull, eat someone's pet." <laughs> so I think maybe he did eat the family cat as a baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. But if he wants to be mayor, he's going to have to behave. So he gets back to cross-referencing his names against the addresses in his list. So this is kind of the first mention of addresses. I wasn't sure what he was doing with the cross-referencing of names. But yeah, now we're getting addresses in there. So it's a little, little scarier. Yeah. Chapter 20, Scene 2. Gotham City was falling apart. Selina looked out of her window. People ran. She heard three or four different kinds of sirens. There was a fire in the distance. She heard gunshots that sounded like they could have come from around the corner. Miss Kitty meowed at her. Why not? 
She quickly changed her clothes. An orgy of sex and violence, she said to her cat. Count me in, Miss Kitty. She crawled out onto the fire escape. Watch out, Gotham City. It was time for Catwoman to sharpen her claws. Next scene is just a, a tiny little scene that is from uh, Selena's point of view. And basically she's in her apartment and hearing all the chaos that's going on. She changes into her costume and she says to her cat, An orgy of sex and violence? Count me in, Miss Kitty. Yeah, she's a she really did a 180. <laughs> totally, yeah. So she gets out into the fire escape and uh, heads out into the night. She says that line about uh, Catwoman needs to sharpen her claws, uh, which is interesting because uh, that's not in the movie. We don't see this little scene in the movie. But uh, since Craig Shaw Gardner wrote both this and the first one, I find it, it it's I don't know if it was meant to be an homage, but uh, Joker says a very similar line in the first movie about uh, it's time to clean my claws. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So I, I was wondering if that was kind of an homage to that line in the first movie because they sound very similar i was hoping we kind of learn what her claws were made of because he mentioned like back in uh, what chapter 17 where she's putting together her costume that she i think it said she went to the kitchen to find claws and it was amazing what you could find lying around and it hasn't really told us what her claws are made of yet and I remember, I have a vague memory of the movie of some kind of weird-looking things, but at, at the time when I saw them, I didn't know what they were. Yeah, they're not. They're pretty vague about what they are in the movie, too. So, mm, Okay. Chapter 20, Scene 3. Violence filled the night. A woman with a belt filled with knives chose an axe instead to beat down a door. The gang members around her were content to simply beat up defenseless citizens who happened to be passing by. Batman stepped from the shadows, and all the thugs turned to greet him. He reached down to his belt and pulled out a small electronic device that would be perfect for this occasion. He held the box in one hand as he punched four white dots, then a red, with the other hand. The woman with the knives threw a blade straight into the Batman's chest. It lodged in the insignia of his body armor. He'd have to pull it out when he had a free minute. Batman punched in a second code to follow the first. So, um, the third scene is from Batman's point of view. The Red Triangle Circus is still doing their shenanigans, and Batman comes out, and they all turn and, you know, get ready to, to charge him. And he's messing with something, kind of seems a little bit of a clumsy contraption with all the buttons he has to push to get it to do anything. But, you know, technology in the, in the early 90s, I get it. But this it looks like it's a remote-controlled batarang. And I always hate having to use these in Ark in the Arkham games. <laughs> They're hard to hard to control. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the battering flies from one thug to another, knocking them all out cold. And there's this funny scene. You know, it's flying back to Batman, but before it gets there, a poodle jumps up and catches it out of the air. And the poodle, if you remember, was the pet of a circus woman. Mm-hmm. And she and the dog both take off running down an alley. And I thought. Okay, yeah, that's that's kind of that's funny. It's kind of ballsy <laughs> to like steal something from Batman. 
I like that a little bit too. And I, I always thought that uh, electronic battering always kind of fascinated me. So like, well, I think it's a neat idea, but I feel like it needed, it wasn't fully baked yet because he had to punch in like 30 codes in, yeah. in the battering. And it's like, when you're in the middle of a fight, I don't think you got time to tell everyone, say, hey, everyone, can you just stand back in a semicircle while I type in these codes and then I'll let yeah. this go? You know, it's like, it seemed like it needed to be a little bit more battle ready. Not to mention that you're typing, you're pressing all these little buttons with gloves with and gloves, gauntlets. Right, and all the buttons yeah. were black. Like, I mean, how do you know which one's which? I was like, I have, enough, <laughs> I have enough problem typing into my phone with my regular hands, much less <laughs> bat gloves. But, of course, we're not Batman, so. True, true. we aren't, yeah, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the 89 novelization where he's pushing all these buttons in the, I can't remember if it's the Batwing or the uh, Batmobile, but he's using toggle switches. And I'm like, oh, toggle switches, that feels so 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Batman thinks briefly about going to retrieve the battering from the uh, dog and the woman, but the sword swallower jumps out and starts pulling the sword from his throat. And Batman elbows him in the ribs so that he doubles over and then, quote, helpfully removed the sword for him. <laughs> Ouch. Savage. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you're gonna... If you're going to get into a fight with Batman, maybe have your weapon drawn already. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if that weapon is in you, you may want to take it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then right away, there's a clown with three sticks of dynamite strapped to his chest, along with a small clock face. So some sort of bomb. And the clown starts threatening you. I'm going to blow up this hole. But then Batman uses the sword because you know he's trained in martial arts and I'm, he has a, uh, a history of being good with the sword as well. So I'm not surprised that he has the uh, ability to cut the straps with the sword and then kind of use the point to flick the bomb into his other hand. And then he turns it around and, and hits the clown's skull with the hilt of the sword to knock him out. And he tosses the sword away, but then he thinks, oh, I'll keep the bomb. You never know what one will come in handy. <laughs> yeah that and that sounds like a batman line and again like i wonder do you if you remember the batman the batman 69 movie uh i was just uh, yeah, thinking that that i that's that's got to be another homage to you just some days you just can't get rid of can't a get rid of a bomb <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. oh yeah I, I that was exactly the scene the image that was in my head when all this was going on so good stuff <laughs> So any final thoughts on this uh, this group of five chapters? This group of chapters had some of the some of the best stuff from the movie so far. Like you get uh, Selena's birth into Catwoman. You get kind of her becoming what she's going to be. Uh, you get some funny lines from Max and uh, and you get that great Bruce in business mode. So oh, there, yeah, there's great. a lot of good kind of stuff I enjoyed in these chapters and and there's going to be a lot more good stuff to come but I'm I mean this is this is a really good adaptation of the movie and it has its own kind of thing to it and uh in some ways makes the movie better nice I, I definitely love the Bruce the businessman Bruce who's not taking any crap so he's definitely not a pushover in the business world yeah good stuff so our next the next time we record will be chapters 21 through 25. And I forget how many chapters this book has. Let me, let me flip to the back. There's an epilogue. Uh, 42 chapters. So yeah, we're hitting the halfway point. So again, listeners, if you would like to send in any comments, you can find us on thebatmanuniverse.net. You can email me at darknightpros at gmail.com. 
or find us on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP. Definitely check out Paxton's projects as well. I You work with uh, four different podcasts, five including mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, one of mine just recently uh, closed up shop. So yeah, I have uh, a Western podcast called Hellbent for Letterboxd. I have a cult movie podcast called Cult Film Club. And uh, the, the one we met about was uh, I Read Movies, where I... Uh, read and analyze movie novelizations and compare them to the movies that they novelize. Excellent. So yeah, guys, definitely check that out. So until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Mm-hmm.